welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This is the full recording of our security and development seminar on transnational crime, gangs, guns, drugs, and development in Latin America. This seminar is one of a series of four high-level discussions exploring the intersections between security, growth, and development in Latin America. They are led by Thomas Abt, Senior Research Fellow at CID, and Joao Manuel Pino de Mello, Lehman Visiting Scholar at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies, and future presentations from prominent academics, practitioners, and policymakers. Today we're going to explore how transnational criminal organizations obstruct development in Latin America, uh, with a special focus, but not exclusive exclusive focus on Colombia. And uh, I'm very pleased to have three prominent experts with us today. Uh, Daniel Mejia, immediately to my left, is Secretary of Security for Bogota, Colombia, where he is in charge of leading security and justice policies in that city. Uh, before becoming the first Secretary of Security uh, for Bogota, Daniel was Associate Professor in the Department of Economics and Director of the Research Center on Drugs and Security at the Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. Uh, Daniel's been actively involved in a, in a res uh, research that provides independent economic evaluations of security and anti-drug uh, policies in Colombia. He's won numerous awards and received his PhD in economics from Brown University. Uh, Stephen Dudley, uh, to his left, is the co-founder and co-director of Insight Crime, an extremely influential foundation and news, services, uh, news service dedicated to the study of organized crime in Latin America. He's also a senior fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies in Washington, D.C. He previously worked as the bureau chief of the Miami Herald in the Andean, in the Andean reg region and is the author of Walking Ghosts, Murder and Guerrilla Politics in Colombia. Uh, finally, Zhao DeMello is a Lehman Visiting Scholar at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies. Uh, he is currently Professor of Economics at INSPER, and after receiving his PhD in Economics from Stanford, uh, Zhao joined the faculty uh, of the Economics Department at the Catholic University in Rio de Janeiro, uh, where he served until 2014, um, and he uh, uh, and he is currently uh, at, uh, a professor at INSPER. Uh, since 2011, he's been the co-head of the America Latina Crime and Policy Network, which is Al Capone for short. Uh, a fun, a fun acronym. Uh, and Al Capone, uh, despite its fun name, is a quite a serious organization. It's a network of researchers. Uh, Daniel is one uh, who are working on criminal justice issues in Latin America. And finally, Zhao is a columnist uh, with Folha de Sao Paulo, where he writes uh, in articles on economics. So let's begin our discussion. Uh, uh, we're going to, uh, for the next uh, 45 minutes or so, we're going to have a moderated discussion uh, between myself and the panelists uh, here. And then for the final half hour of the discussion, we're going to turn uh, to all of you here in the audience and uh, watching and participating via Facebook. So I, I'd like to open it up with a very uh, simple, broad question. Uh, what exactly is transnational crime? 
what are transnational criminal organizations? Are they simply organizations or networks with members in multiple countries? Uh, do they need to have some type of organizational capacity, or is it something different? Uh, is there a taxonomy or typology of transnational crime that we should be aware of? Um, Steve, let's begin with you. Um, and give us your thoughts here generally, both in Colombia and uh, across the region. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's a great honor to be here, so thanks a lot for inviting me, and uh, thanks everybody for coming out. Um, I guess I would just sort of give you a basic typology uh, just to start us off, and, and certainly we'll be able to fill in some of the gaps as we go along. Uh, the, the, the basic way that we try and understand these things is in, is in tiers, and in thinking about those tiers, what each tier has as an end goal. Certainly we start out with uh, the most famous of the criminal groups, the, the drug trafficking organizations, the DTOs. They're the most famous probably because they accumulate the most capital and you know they can influence so much because of what they accumulate in terms of capital. We're talking about social influence, political influence, obviously economic influence, and also because they, they have the ability to create virtual armies, little mini armies that often challenge the state um, for for legitimacy, uh, for territory, and other and other aspects of of the societies and communities in which they operate, the second tier is a, a sort of derivative of this first tier, and they are really those armies that they have created. Many of these armies that they have created over time have become independent. Um, they become independent operational actors on their own. They're almost hybrids of sorts, but they have a different uh, end goal. Their end goal is much more about controlling local economy, the flow of local criminal economy most of all, but also the legitimate economy, the legal economy. And they do this by controlling territory. They're territorial type organizations, which goes back to their origins, their armies really in origin. And a lot of their experience, infrastructure, and other things came from perhaps their connections to the first tier, but they've developed independently over time. And then the third tier are street gangs. Um, the type of street gangs that you have even operational here in Boston, like the MS-13. They're transnational in the sense that they have members that are transnational, but they're really still sort of hand-to-mouth organizations. They don't have a lot of transnational criminal activity, per se, that we can talk about. And they have a slightly different ethos, which revolves around, is much around sort of their rivalry with other gangs, mostly other street gangs, and that is, that is part of the essence of their existence. Uh, violence and their rivalry with another gang is really an integral part of what those gangs are and who they are. Um, obviously, all, these, all these, these different tiers need to operate in conjunction with, uh, with the authorities. Uh, most notably, I would say, and briefly, would be the police, and mostly local police. They need to have regular interaction with local police in order to be operational, in order to have their criminal, criminal revenue streams flowing. Um, but also they need to be uh, operational and, and have connections with politicians, mostly local politicians. So a lot of the criminal gangs that we see emerge, emerge from a local atmosphere, and their relationship with the local police and with local politicians are really what give them a certain amount of coverage to do what they do. So that would be a basic typology in this. 
thank you, Steve. Uh, it's a, a fascinating typology. I just want to make one sort of observation. In suggesting that there's these three tiers, you're not suggesting that there's a sort of formal organizational structure or that they're always communicating with another. This is just a helpful way of ranking or understanding them, correct? Absolutely. Uh, just a very helpful basic structure. There's interaction amongst them. There's a relationship amongst them. There are ways in which they feed off one another. They often fight one another. There are ways in which some organizations can even sort of move to another tier if you will, and we've seen that occur as well. But there, it's really a basic structure to give us an understanding of, and a, of, of the way organized crime works in Latin America. I'm, I'm specifically talking about Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, uh, Daniel Zhao, any, any thoughts on this? Uh, first of all, uh, thank you very much, Thomas and Ricardo, for uh, pushing this agenda. I know that it was uh, up to Ricardo to do the introduction, but I, I would like to say a few words. When, when Danielle and I and other researchers, we started Al Capone, it was on the diagnosis that crime was a phenomenon in Latin America. That it was, if you had the important, social importance of the phenomenon as measured by the social cost of violence and, for instance, uh, what people said in opinion polls, the ratio of that importance divided by the number of papers written on that, you would have one of, one of the, the highest ratios in, the, in social sciences uh, overall. Uh, and that, that was one thing that motivated us because we, we figured that we had some capacity in Latin America to tackle these issues in an organized way. And that's, we've been pushing this agenda. I think it's fast, it's great that the CID has been uh, supporting this agenda with the leadership of Thomas that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I. I'm going to take a. I'm going to take a view here on what I am. I, I probably understand more, which is the third type of organizations, which are more the, what what you call, uh, street gang organizations. Uh, and I want to, just add a little to the, the typology, the taxonomy that, that that Stephen has, so fluently gave us, which is, there is a a component which is a prison system that is really important to understand uh, most of these uh, uh, criminal organizations. And this is, one of, this is a very understudied subject that I believe deserves a lot of uh, attention. <laughs> of course, my, my take is from, from the Brazilian side that we have a, a long history of uh, prison gangs that from within the prison system propagated their, their, their power outside the prison system. Uh, and one interesting aspect, and I think it's something that we're going to mention a lot in this, uh, in this next 45 minutes, is how do prison gangs interact with the drug trade? How do they uh, increase their power by dominating the prison system? And how do they coexist with the state? Uh, and I'm particularly interested in the tacit collusion between the state and, the, and, 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 and prison, prison gangs in order to keep order, and on the fascinating choices uh, that, uh, as a, that police and enforcers have in how to engage with these organizations. Because there are choices. Some, some of them are hard to recognize. 
Should you confront them? Should you coexist? Uh, how does that affect the legitimacy of the state? Uh, and how, by affecting the legitimacy of the state, because you're coexisting with a criminal organization, how does that create uh, a phenomenon that uh, I was introduced by, for, by, by Thomas, uh, judicial cynicism, that people just don't believe in the judicial system anymore, how does that retrofits into more crime and more power to these uh, uh, criminal organizations. Uh, I just, this is just the only aspect that I would add to the great taxonomy that Stephen uh, has given us. Daniel, uh, your thoughts, uh, particularly with regard to uh, uh, transnational organizations in Colombia? Yeah, I guess, first of all, I guess they emerge when governments give up on regulating a market. It's not that drug markets are unregulated. They are regulated, but they are regulated by criminal organizations. When a government gives up, when a government gives up on, on regulating a market, on, for instance, the drug market, someone is going to fill that vacuum and start regulating by the market by choosing prices, quantities, quality, ways of transportation, distribution, etc. And when we talk about the legal markets or criminal organizations in, in, in Latin America, we mostly are talking about drug markets, uh, which in Colombia the, 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 the estimates are that they can account for between 2.5 to 5 percent of Colombian GDP over the last 20 or so years uh, and that's that's a huge market it can be up to seven billion dollars per year uh, that is under the control of very small criminal organizations but very powerful or just, if I could just, add one thing. just just very quickly um, one thing that is often forgotten this in this equation is also the role of elites um, in in criminal organizations and in criminal operations uh, political elites, economic elites, there is a clear interaction between these elites and these criminal operations uh, without which many of these criminal operations would not be able to operate. There's a direct co uh, connection to them, but there's also an indirect connection to them, and that is that they almost systematically deprive many of the institutions, state institutions, of the resources they need in order to fight these particular criminal organizations. You know. And what we what we call frequently impunity. So they foster impunity directly by not paying taxes and other ways. So I think it's an important consideration in all this. Yes, uh, Steve, we had a difficult time deciding whether you should be on our previous panel concerning corruption or this panel. So uh, thank you for that. Um, another broad question, uh, you know, how does transnational crime uh, impact Latin American uh, nations, particularly in terms of the costs. Um, how is it uh, affecting society, uh, politics, and the economy, uh, and the prospects for development? Uh, Daniel, why don't we begin with you? Okay, there's, I, I'll start with uh, corruption. Uh, there is an, an author in Colombia, a historian, I guess, which said that it was politicians who corrupted drug traffickers in Colombia. And it's actually the case. It was politicians who attempted to, to convince Pablo Escobar to run for Congress. It was not Pablo Escobar who tried to run for Congress, but politicians who approached him, the Liberal Party actually, who approached him to run for Congress. So corruption, I guess the Colombian history and the history of other countries in Latin America, Mexico now, uh, Central America is full of stories of, of uh, direct links between uh, drug trafficking organizations and politicians. Uh, and in terms of the cost of conflict and the cost of combating these uh, 
organizations. I guess the difference between uh, what what would be the standard measure of, of violence in, in Latin America, and I think that the, the extra violence that we have in Latin America is all explained by drug trafficking. In Colombia, the homicide rate, the part of the homicide rate that is explained by drug trafficking is about 25% of Colombia. The, the Colombian homicide rate is, is explained by drug trafficking. If you actually subtract the 25% of the Colombian homicide rate, uh, you would get the average Latin American homicide rate. So I guess the, the economic costs of having cr large criminal organizations shouldn't be, shouldn't be counted only as the extra amount of, of military spending, but also on the cost imposed to the, to the economy for having these large levels of violence compared to other countries in the region. Uh, thank you. Uh, Steve, Zhao, anything to add? Uh, I think there, there's one thing that is an inescapable for the, the producer countries and the transit countries, that most of the costs of, uh, of combating uh, drug trafficking has been shifted to those countries. I think most of the strategy uh, has been a supply reduction strategy that is very costly for the producers and the transit countries. Uh, of course, there might be there are many uh, aspects of the uh, strategy that can, could be demand reducing. We're going to talk about this, but I think it, we, we should start as, as a uh, as a starting point. I think we should start recognizing that. I think that, that Danielle used just uh, you used this great analogy once that uh, suppose that we shifted all the all the demand for for cocaine to Canada, uh, would, would the United States tolerate uh, the amount of violence that there was in Tijuana to take place in Seattle, for instance? Uh, I think that that's one way to think about how the costs have been shifted to producer and transit countries. Uh, and uh, then Daniel has touched this issue, but I wanted to elaborate a little bit on it. Uh, there is there is a suspicion about uh, Latin American exceptionalism in crime. Uh, that means uh, we run regressions, and the residual for Latin America is always, uh, it, it appears to be really high. So if we throw in inequality, income, poverty, uh, measures, the, like fluffy measures, that, but they capture something like rule of law, uh, we cannot explain Latin American's crime rate. When you actually break it down by country, you can explain Brazil, you can explain uh, Argentina, you can explain many countries. Those are pushing up the, the residuals are the producer and the transit countries, which is a, is a big suggestion that uh, what is causing most of the Latin American exceptionalism when you look at it in the aggregates is the fact that Latin America is a big producer and wholesale distributor of uh, of narcotics. Very interesting. I, I, I would just say that, I mean, I, of course I'm not going to deny the perverse impact of drug trafficking and other organized crime activities, but 
the portfolios of those who we've studied, the criminal groups that we've studied, are incredibly diverse. One aspect of what they do, and normally their original capital accumulation starts maybe with cattle rustling, maybe moves to some sort of contraband or some sort of idea like that, and then moves gradually towards drug trafficking. When they reach drug trafficking status, they probably already have cattle businesses and other businesses operating, and they end up generating quite a bit of business activity in the areas in which they operate. So I can't think that... I have to think that we have to include this in our analysis. We can't just simply talk about the costs all the time without also talking about the people who are receiving direct benefits from this. And you see this when these people get extradited or when they get arrested. There are normally large marches and things of that sort because people have lost their jobs there. The businesses have been confiscated, et cetera. So I'd like us to consider that as well when we're talking about this issue. Thanks, Steve. Uh, let's explore that from a slightly different angle. Uh, the, you know, there are two trends that, in my mind, seem uh, difficult to reconcile uh, with regard to Latin America. Uh, transnational criminal organizations have appeared to grow stronger over time, while many Latin American nations are moving huge people, uh, huge numbers of people, out of poverty. Uh, I think to many people, those trends seem inconsistent with one another. Uh, how would you, how would you, uh, you know, uh, try to reconcile them or explain them? Um, Zhao, why don't we, why don't we begin with you? Um, as an economist, how do you think about this? Uh, it's a great question, Thomas. Uh, I think they can Thank coexist. Thank you very much, <laughs> I think they can co coexist pretty. Uh, I mean, Latin America, although uh, in the 2000s, We've uh, we've experienced uh, tremendous uh, improvements in, uh, especially taking people out of, out of poverty and the reduction in inequality. It, it is still a very unequal uh, region, uh, with a. Uh, I know it's a it's kind of a catchy phrase, but the, with state low uh, low state capacity and uh, rule of law is not totally prevalent, so. Uh, if you have a demand in a business that generates income, as in generates not only direct income but uh, also the, the indirect income, indirect jobs connected to it, uh, I think it's just going to be there, regardless of of of, of uh, the fraction of people out of poverty. Uh, if inequality is, is high and uh, rule of law is low, and demand is there. Uh, it will be supplied, and I think I think Latin America is especially well positioned to supply that to the to to uh, to the mature markets that are mostly consuming the, the narcotics. So, so I, th I think it can coexist. So what you're saying is is that uh, you know when we're looking at cru uh, root causes or structural factors, we should pay sort of less attention to poverty and more to inequality and to state capacity. I think mostly state capacity, especially because inequality. Uh, I, 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 the relationship between inequality and crime in general and transnational crime, uh, as you know, is tricky. Yeah, and stay uh, tuned. We're going to discuss that next semester. Uh, it, it may well be while we measure inequality uh, in terms of income, had we measured inequality in terms of welfare, uh, I think we'd be, if we could do that, we would quickly find out that crime uh, causes tremendous amount of inequality, victimizes uh, mostly the poor, especially because the rich... Uh, can protect themselves. So of course, there's a they can pay for it and reduce a little bit their disposable income. But I think it's worth it. They, by review preference, they do it. Uh, 
And even if we're talking about inequality as measured by income, uh, I, I, I do believe that uh, violence does cause inequality in and of itself. So I would stress the state capacity as, a, uh, as the main issue here. Thank you. Uh, Daniel, your thoughts? There, there was a huge debate in Colombia in the 90s, 80s and 90s about between the sociologists and the economists about the, the, the causes behind the high levels of violence. The, of course, the sociologists thought about the, what they call the structural, the objective causes of violence, inequality, poverty. Uh, but if you look at Colombia and compare it, for instance, to Ecuador and Peru, the levels of violence are completely different, and the levels of inequality, poverty, uh, and other social uh, indicators were very similar. So I think it's more; it has more to do with what Joao calls state capacity, but state capacity is also affected by violence. The judicial system, the, the capacity of the criminal justice system to prosecute a criminal organization gets hurt when, when criminal organizations grow over time. So I don't I don't believe much in the in the in what it's called the structural the objective causes of violence, but more on a, on a problem that grows over time and starts affecting state capacity and gets the other problem worse. Um, I I think that's fascinating. I mean, there I think there's an argument to be made that the causal pathway between structural factors and crime and violence. Uh, may be at least as strong in reverse from violence uh, and crime to structural factors. It's something we'll explore in a in a separate session. Uh, Steve, your thoughts? Um, very quickly, just from a criminal perspective, I think that we have to consider that the rise of a middle class, um, the lowering of poverty, um, it helps create a criminal market, uh, an, an increasingly large criminal market. While certainly not as large as the international drug trafficking market, relatively speaking for these local criminal groups, who are the generators of this violence in large part, local criminal groups, these sort of second and third tier groups, are the ones who are, who are benefiting from this increased size of a criminal market. And what we're talking about is local drug peddling most, most of all, but also uh, extortion. So if you increase the size of that pie, what you are doing is you are increasing the size of those incentives amongst these groups that have simultaneously, because of these other activities, gotten larger, they have more infrastructure, they have more weaponry. Um, Etc. So these combination, it's not a paradox at all. It's a, in fact, it fits nicely with what you would expect if you have economic development and a simultaneous impoverishment, systematic impoverishment of the institutions. The development, in other words, is not equal. Development of the economy is not equal with the development of the institutions. Right. Can I just a, a quick comment on that? Sure. Uh, I, I totally agree. If you look at, there is this paradox, for instance, in Brazil, that Inequality has dropped uh, starkly in the Northeast region. It was the region that, most, that, that grew the most during the 2000s. It was the poorest region. Uh, and violence exploded in the Northeast of Brazil. Uh, it's, people are starting to gather evidence, for instance, that drug markets are actually pushing there, possibly because demand is increasing and it's an income effect. We're seeing, for instance, you can see with data on, uh, on overdoses that... Uh, uh, it's totally compatible with what you just said. Yeah. Uh, I always, uh, in this area, when I think about uh, uh, 
sort of development and government capacity. Uh, Enrique Betancourt from Mexico gives a great presentation on uh, Ciudad Juarez, and he notes that over a short period of time, uh, the uh, the uh, Ciudad Juarez, the population uh, uh, quintupled, but the police force uh, doubled. Uh, if I'm getting those numbers approximately right. So, you know, uh, massive urbanization, massive de development, but not, uh, but government capacity is not uh, keeping pace. Um, let's turn to policy for a moment, uh, focusing uh, again on drugs and narcotics. Uh, in this area, as many of you probably know, um, many experts make a distinction between supply side and demand side strategies for uh, addressing uh, the issue. Uh, let's focus on the supply side for a second. Uh, what's worked um, and what hasn't? Um, and Daniel, um, specifically, uh, give us your thoughts in terms of what's uh, what's working or hasn't in Colombia, and also uh, you know the U.S.'s role um, in Plan Colombia, a very recognized sort of uh, major investment uh, from the U.S. I guess I'll start with the, with what Joel was mentioning. I think we can see prohibition as a transfer of the cost of the, of, uh, from, from consumer to producer countries, where the, the intuition is that they push producer countries to reduce supply under the idea that uh, that's going to reduce consumption in producer countries. Um, so in that, in that vein, uh, that was the start of Plan Colombia, which was a strategy to fight against criminal organizations and the production of cocaine. And the, the main focus of Plan Colombia during many years was the was in the very initial stage of cocaine production, which was which is coca crops, and they pushed the idea that by attacking illegal crops by aerial spraying or manual eradication, they would stop the flow of drugs to the U.S. And that has shown that has been shown by the by many different studies to to be extremely costly and not very efficient. Uh, what, ha what worked in Colombia, and, and the evidence is clear on that, is interdiction, focusing on the parts of the chain that produce the, higher, the highest value added. That's the wholesale distribution of drugs in the, from Colombia to Mexico, and that's where, where supply reduction efforts can be effective, at least in the short term. But that creates coordination failures between countries, because when Colombia started being effective in, uh, in uh, combating illegal drug trade, the, 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 the business just shifted to Central America, Mexico. When Mexico is going to uh, begin being effective in, quote, unquote, uh, the, the problem shifted back to the Caribbean islands. So we are just pushing the problem somewhere else. I, I guess uh, supply reduction efforts is just, are just uh, is, is a self-defeating policy. By being effective on, on supply reduction efforts, you increase market rents and you induce more people to get into the market. So I guess the... Whereas supply reduction efforts increase prices, increase, increase market rents, demand reduction efforts actually do the opposite, and they, they tend to be more successful in, in reducing actually the problems in, in Latin America or in producer countries. Uh, Steve. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously the, the bad side. I'll, I'll give a little bit of silver lining on on Planned Colombia and the way that I see it and, and how it may reflect in other countries. I think that there is there is an argument to be made that um, Planned Colombia and other 
assistance measures Steve, have. If you could, could you yeah. just describe in two or three sentences what, in fact, Plan Columbia is for some <laughs> of the uh, audience? Um, a large-scale, multi-pronged assistance uh, package spread over many years to Colombia to mostly assist them in dealing with drug trafficking issues and mostly as they related to the insurgency, the uh, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. That would be my best, closest description of that. The, the, certainly the, 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 the part that got most of the press was this idea of uh, coca eradication. There's another aspect of this which has to do with uh, development of institutions, specifically institutions that need to gather intelligence and act on that intelligence um, in a way that, that helps them eliminate high-end or um, you know, high targets, uh, powerful targets of, of drug trafficking and guerrilla groups. And in this regard, I would say that it was uh, largely a success. And I think actually on a political, in a political sphere, supremely important, supremely important as it, as it was related to mostly um, luring over time the guerrillas to the negotiating table. So in a way, you could argue that this is part of a process, a larger process of debilitating a large criminal and political organization, obviously, and luring them towards a negotiating table. Certainly, there are different ways in which this manifests itself in places like Mexico, and you could argue that the negotiating table in Mexico is much more about things like extradition or which jail you're going to be in and those sorts of things. But the same impact could be had. Um, Calderon, for all his failures, had set about a list of 37 high-level criminals that he liked to, he, that he said he wanted to take down, he, he captured or killed 25 of them, which by most measures would be a success story. Now, he couldn't sell it very well, but that's a whole other story. But that is part of that process. So if I'm going to look for silver lining in all this, I'm going to look there. Joe. Uh, just uh, amplifying a little bit what Danielle said, uh, if, if the demand is relatively insensitive to prices, and uh, let's assume that that's the case for for most of uh, narcotics in the short run. Uh, I guess uh, you write a simple model in which by attacking supply, you actually draw more resources into the industry. And this is possibly why, if you look at the factual, not the counterfactual, if you look at what happened, most people would say, like looking at over the last 20 or 30 years, that uh, quantities tran transacted haven't gone down. If anything, I think they have gone up. So. Of course, we don't know what would have happened absent the war on drugs that was waged, uh, started to be waged like 30 years ago. But uh, I guess most of we, but we do know the factual, uh, and the factual suggests that it's, it's not uh, a huge success. Uh, uh, so, and as we said, it, it might be politically sustainable because it shifts most of the costs somewhere else, uh, which is something that we've been mentioning. Uh, quite a lot here. Okay. Uh, so uh, you've all discussed a number of really significant challenges uh, on the supply side. Uh, what about uh, the demand side, the uh, sort of public health oriented uh, side? Um, what's working there? What isn't? Uh, what's going on in that area, uh, both in Colombia and in the uh, region at large? Well, I guess the answer is very short. Despite a lot of rhetoric by former presidents, acting presidents, not much. 
Uh, we've talk, we all talk about a public health approach towards drug consumption, and if you actually look at the at the facts, you don't see almost any program working in any country in the region on uh, treatment prevention, uh, uh, harm reduction, almost nothing. Uh, and we have a long way to go to actually approach drug use as a public health pro uh, problem. And we haven't done that, despite a lot of rhetoric but by many organizations, by many people who actually want to, to bring a public health approach to drug consumption, we haven't done much in that sense. Steve. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the easy and continued villain in the drug uh, equation is, is the United States. But the reality is, is, is because of the increased consumption um, in, in um, most of Latin America, all of Latin America, I mean, Argentina per capita consumption, Brazil per capita consumption is basically equal to the United States. Brazil might have surpassed the United States at this stage. And as I said, most of the violence is generated by this local criminal economy. So the easy thing is still for them to say, oh, the consumer countries, the major consumer countries, you know, Europe, uh, United States, Asia mostly in, in, those, in those spaces are to blame. But the reality is, is Latin America has to look in the mirror and they haven't yet. They haven't looked in the mirror and they haven't put any resources towards this. And I don't know when that's going to change, but certainly the political rhetoric will, will, will have to change to begin with. Uh, yes, I think we have to do a lot of uh, soul searching on that. I agree totally with uh, Danielle that I don't know of any initiative that was successful in uh, uh, treating drugs, drug use as a public health uh, issue. I think we've been moving, several countries have been moving towards uh, at least not treating uh, drug use as a criminal issue. Of course, it's going to be kind of hard to treat it as a public health issue if you treat consumption as a crime. Uh, Brazil is one of the examples, although the drug law of 2005 hasn't been totally uh, uh, successful for other reasons, because uh, we didn't count on uh, police in enforcement reacting to it. Uh, but uh, I agree with Steve. Uh, uh, there is a lot of drug consumption there, and it's not treated as a public health issue, which should have. Uh, and it's really, really disappointing. Uh, and, part of, and, and, part of the, and part of the blame on that is, is the rhetoric of uh, shifting the blame to the north. That's true. And, and the horrible irony, of course, is that this is what fills up jails and what leads to this prison criminal economy as well and, and criminal operations from the prisons. So. Right. Uh, one, one, of, one of several factors. Uh, Zhao, let's keep the mic with you uh, for a moment. Um, you know, it's impossible uh, to discuss the, uh, these questions without bringing up legalization uh, so, or, or decriminalization. So uh, let's just hear from each of you uh, on your position uh, and your thoughts in terms of decriminalization and or legalization of uh, narcotics. And we'll just go down the line. Okay. Uh, so many countries have supposedly from the, from a, from a, the penal side have uh, decriminalized. Brazil is one example. In fact, from a penal uh, point of view, it decriminalized in 2005. Uh, it just turns out that there is some evidence not that strong that actually cracking down on, 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 uh, on consumption has increased and trafficking has increased because uh, the police would just mark the weight that, you, that you've been caught with just to, uh, 
qualify as trafficking. Uh, so decriminalization, I think it's, it, it's a general tendency. I think it has, it has a good chance in terms of political support. Uh, my personal view is that we should move towards a different paradigm, towards more legalization, not only of decriminalization of consumption, but actually uh, legalizing production. But practically, uh, in Latin America, I don't think that we command uh, a lot of support. So I think it's, uh, it's more productive to focus on different strategies to enforcement within the prohibition paradigm. Uh, I think this is the real interesting, one of the, the most interesting policy questions. How do you allocate scarce enforcement resources uh, within the pro prohibition paradigm? That's sort of, a, I, I'm within the prohibition paradigm because I think that's the politically viable uh, thing in Latin America at least. Uh, and towards making drug markets less criminogenic. I think that's the issue that we should, uh, I really put a lot of focus on. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, I, for the same reason, uh, the, the, this idea of um, uh, decriminalizing legalization is important for the same reasons I stated earlier. This idea of filling up the prisons have just created these finishing schools and development areas for criminal groups. Um, but at the same time, I think that this is often uh, um, a red herring uh, in the debate, and I think that we need to separate the different pieces of it. It's often spoken about in very broad terms, this idea of, you know, legalization across the board. I think there needs to be experimentation done, and there is being, there is some experimentation being done in places like Uruguay and others. I think we have to keep a close eye on, on those sorts of experiments. Um, but I think that the, the, the core problem uh, with all this remains what was mentioned earlier, this idea of institutions. And um, you can take away certain criminal markets, but until you start building out some of these institutions to deal with organized crime, it's still going to be organized crime and be a very strong problem that's going to compete with the state. Well, I hope I, I don't get in trouble for saying this, but I think there is no tension at, at all between being having a more evidence-based ba evidence approach on drug policy and reducing crime. Actually, quite the opposite. If you manage to, I don't, and I don't think the word is legalization or uh, decriminalization, the word is regulation. Uh, if you manage to do that, you're not, going, you're not only going to, in, to improve health indicators, but you will free up uh, enforcement resources. It's a, waste, it's a complete waste of resources to have a policeman going after a marijuana consumer. It's a complete waste of resources. When there are criminals uh, committing all sorts of... Uh, violent crimes in the streets. And second, uh, if you manage to regulate or drug markets or even have control uh, injection units or uh, such as the ones you have in Vancouver, I think uh, you're going to reduce crime because people are not will not have to steal things in the streets to, to manage to sustain their drug consumption. And you open a door for them to enter a treatment program. So I think I truly believe that there is no tension between being more progressive on drug markets, on drug policy, sorry, and reducing crime. There is no, there is no tension there. I th and I think that tension is a myth that was created by people who promote uh, prohibition. I want to uh, just add a, a sort of layer of complexity to this uh, issue of uh, legalization or regulation, which is that we have a 
uh, massive experiment with uh, legalization and regulation of uh, of a uh, uh, of a narcotic, and that's the recent U.S. experience with opioids, where we essentially um, uh, legalized uh, opioids and pushed them out in massive quantities as painkillers, uh, oxycotton, per uh, Percocet, and and others. And uh, what we've seen is just an enormous flow of uh, huge casualties. Um, and as authorities uh, began to realize the scope of the over-prescribing uh, and the uh, widespread misuse of, uh, of these painkillers and started to uh, 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 tamp down on that supply, it's not surprising that a lot of that demand then went into heroin. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, a, uh, I think it's a, a really sobering example of in a, you know, first world country, uh, which is supposed to have a, you know, well-developed regulatory system, uh, what can happen uh, when you, uh, when you uh, uh, do these things. And so uh, I don't claim to have all the answers, and I think we're probably all in agreement that the war on drugs uh, was not successful and we need new strategies. But I think the uh, concept of uh, legalization is not a, is not a panacea. Um, I want to switch, uh, uh, switch subjects a little bit and now talk about um, transnational crime um, and violence. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been hinting about, about this, about the sort of interrelationship between crime, capacity, uh, these drug businesses and, uh, and violence. And I want to ask you uh, about this in, uh, in reference to a specific strategy uh, called focused deterrence. Um, focused deterrence, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is a strategy that was developed here in Boston in the 90s uh, to combat um, gang and uh, gun violence. Uh, it was known in Boston as ceasefire. And since then, it's uh, been widely uh, replicated uh, across, uh, across the United States. Uh, and uh, in a meta-review that I did with uh, Chris Winship here at Harvard, um, we found that it is likely the most uh, successful um, evidence-informed uh, violence reduction strategy uh, in the United States, uh, or either that and cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, the way it works uh, is uh, focused deterrence uh, identifies um, through um, uh, uh, analysis uh, the uh, groups of uh, offenders who are most likely to shoot or be shot. Uh, and then it assembles a multidisciplinary task force uh, that includes law enforcement, but also includes community representatives, faith-based providers, service providers, and others. And that task force then does something very unusual, which is it confronts that, uh, that, that high-risk uh, group of uh, people who are most likely to shoot or be shot. And it delivers a double message. The, the, uh, the first message delivered by law enforcement is the sort of stick-type message. It says, we know who you are, we're watching you, and the shooting must stop. If the shooting does not stop, uh, we, will, we, will stop uh, we will stop you. But then uh, the community groups uh, stand up, uh, the faith-based groups, the service providers stand up, and they say, 
what you're doing is wrong and what you're doing is hurting the community. But if you stop the shooting, we want you back. You can still be part of this community and we're willing to offer you resources, we're willing to offer you services to get your lives uh, back on track. And that double message um, has um, been particularly powerful combined with this focus uh, on the people, on, on a specific group of people, um, these uh, gangs uh, and groups, and a specific behavior, which is shooting and killing. Uh, Mark Kleiman, a well-known criminologist, uh, wrote an article in Foreign Affairs suggesting, why aren't we doing this in Latin America on a sort of uh, meta scale? Why aren't we sending a clear message to drug cartels saying, uh, we don't like your drug dealing um, and we're not tolerating your drug dealing, but our top priority is violence. And the most violent uh, organizations will be singled out for enforcement. And for the organizations that are willing to uh, limit or el eliminate their, their violence, we're not saying what you're doing is okay. But we're we're offering. Uh, but we we will prioritize the most violent uh, groups. And there's been a lot of discussion about this and, and about the capacity of Latin American states. And we've been talking about states to actually deliver this. So, um, your thoughts, uh, Daniel, and then we'll go down the line. Well, I guess first of all, to 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 make that uh, the focus deterrence policy is effective, you have to have a very well structured criminal justice system. You have to have a lot of information about about who is committing the cr a crime, if a crime is committed, who committed it, and just a, a clarification: the the standard way it works, and and actually, and actually I think it started in North Carolina, in 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 Boston. Yep. Okay, it's they they tell the groups same, if same. Okay. Did it, okay. Yeah. And they tell them, if you are the the group, if you rank first as a group committing the crimes, you're gonna be the focus. You're gonna be the focus of our policy. So that creates a right a rat race to the bottom, where they start committing epsilon less crimes to be to not to be the first ones. I think establishing this in Latin America, and I remember having this conversation with Mark in the past. I think it's hard in Mexico or in Colombia to have them in a room and tell them we have this against you and you have to be the ones uh, reducing crime is, is quite hard. I think this, ha this is a much more local experiment that can be done in, in cities but not in, at the large scale with criminal organizations. Um, I suppose the uh, two, two aspects I would say that make it more difficult in, in Latin America. One would be data collection an understanding of the actors in the areas and then the, the, the confidence you have in that data that you're gathering because it's hard to find the um, neutral actors. Um, the police are not considered neutral actors. The politicians that operate in these areas are not considered neutral actors. They're not necessarily um, trusted and um, thought of as the type of arbiters that you need the sort of neutral arbiters that you would need to implement um, that sort of project. Certainly you could enhance that if you were able to build up aspects um, before you tried to implement that, especially as you mentioned this relationship between uh, civic or local communities or churches with those actors. And if there were some sort of trust built out prior to that intervention, and an element of uh, data collection, which is much more robust and trustworthy, then possibly you could experiment with this idea. Uh, I'll give uh, 
two, two different answers uh, to the question. One is an anecdote on the positive side. I think there is one a good experience in Latin America that was in Sao Paulo, they, and it has to do with data collection. Back in the late 90s, they actually went to the data and figured, well, who are the repeated murders? Are they in jail or not? And they figured there were a lot, a lot of them who weren't. And just, they, they went after repeated murders. Uh, the, those guys, they, they were totally overrepresented in terms of the murders committed. Uh, and that, we, it's hard to evaluate that policy from a, from a rigorous perspective, but I, I'm sure it had an effect. And it's, it's an example, it's a, little, it's a little different, but it's an example of focus enforcement in that, in that sense. Another one which I think, I think this, this issue has been touched is uh, conceptually, I think that the idea is great. I think you have to factor in the market structure when you do that. Because when you focus on someone, you might have been focusing on the market leader. And by taking these guys down because they're the more violent, you might induce violence uh, to compete for rents after they go down. Uh, I think, I, I don't, I wouldn't go as far as, uh, it's hard to, to make any strong assertion on that, but part of the violence that was uh, followed by Calderon's uh, policy might have had something to do with that on, on disturbing uh, the, the market structure, the equilibrium that was there before. Uh, so I think as, a, as, an, as an idea, I think it's great. Uh, possibly you should factor that in when, when, doing, when considering the whole strategy. Um, the next uh, next couple questions I want to uh, treat as a lightning round. So one minute per answer because we're a little bit past five and I do want to get uh, time for questions. So, and I recognize that these are uh, complicated questions, but please just do your best. So um, in a real sense, you know, strong transnational criminal organizations are competing with uh, weak state governments for capacity and legitimacy in the region. Uh, for instance, we see no-go zones uh, across the region where governments are simply not in charge uh, and the cartels or the gangs are. Um, how do we improve the capacity and legitimacy of the state while diminishing the capacity and legitimacy of these organizations? question I think by having I think by having territorial it's it's I think it's a matter of territorial control actually you know what I think that's a good idea Daniel why don't you give a full answer and okay. uh, I'll ask some other questions to you. okay <laughs> I think that I was saying that it's a, I think it's a matter of territorial control why is there so much production of coca crops and cocaine in some parts of Colombia where there are where there is no state presence and I think the answer is a political answer, because there are no votes there. No politician has an incentive to bring a school, to bring a, a hospital, anything there. So the, the politicians have no incentive to have territorial control over some areas in Colombia. So how do we induce politicians to have an incentive to, have, to bring development to these regions, to Putumayo, to Caquetá, to different regions in Colombia where there is nothing, just coca production, uh, cocaine processing labs, and that's it. There are no votes there. So we have to find incentives so that politicians care for the votes that are in those regions. Uh, and that, that will bring state le legitim le legitimacy. Uh, Daniel, I want to ask you uh, actually another question. Um, uh, 
you're in an unusual situation. Uh, you know, uh, you've spent uh, the vast majority of your career in the academic world, uh, and you've recently trans uh, transitioned to uh, a uh, political and governmental leadership role. Um, I'd love to hear uh, a little bit about uh, your experiences in that regard and how, now that you're in at least at least partly a driver's seat, um, how do you bring research and science to bear? I think when we are in, 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 in academia, we all talk about evidence-based policies, that we have to construct evidence-based policies. And when you get there, there is not much time, first to get bored, and second to think. So you have to very, fa very quickly uh, implement policies and make decisions without having much time to think. Where you in academia you have a lot of time, you have two years to write a paper. We have a, we have papers with Joao that have been there for five or six years and we haven't finished. So is, is that a dig at I think I think in Latin what we have to do in academia is not trying to reinvent the wheel. We have to bring things that have worked in other uh, scenarios, adapt them to to countries like Colombia, to Brazil, to Venezuela. Uh, and then try to implement them as best as we can and with impact evaluations. That's what we are doing in Bogota, for instance, with a hotspots policing experiment, where we not only increase policing time in, in hotspots in Bogota, but we also bring uh, public services, uh, street lighting, uh, trash collection. And we've done this in a spirit where we have of course, a, a randomized control trial where we intervene some some hotspots. We don't some others, and those are randomly selected. And as as much as we can, we should try to bring evaluations. and And if the results are bad, just take back those policies and 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 accept that and and bring better policies to to try to reduce crime. So, uh, final question uh, uh, to the whole panel. Uh, you know, the U.S. has uh, obviously played a significant role uh, in these issues uh, across the region, uh, for better and sometimes for worse. Um, we've had an election here in the United States, and with the new incoming administration, uh, what are your thoughts about uh, the U.S. role uh, in the region with regard to these issues? Uh, you know, uh, what... What, uh, what do you expect from the new administration uh, moving forward? And uh, aside from what you expect, what would you like to see from the new administration? Uh, and why don't we begin, uh, Zhao, with you, and then we'll uh, work back. I'm going to be re really short, because I, I think it, uh, the time is better spent with uh, Stephen and, and, and Daniel on this one, because from my experience that comes from Brazil, the, the, it's not that the U.S. plays a big role in, in this issue, so... Uh, I, I, obviously, I just like anyone else. I don't. I hope for not so crazy things. <laughs> not so crazy things. <laughs> it's a good baseline. Um, I, I I don't think that the president cares at all about Latin America and the Caribbean. That's where I would start, and those would be my my list of five things that he would write down about Latin America and the Caribbean. Number six would be 
that I'm going to delegate it to the very important point people that he has. So I'm very, uh, I'm very interested in who becomes Secretary of State, obviously, because that is certainly a person that can can direct policy. So, and you've got these incredibly different candidates, this array of candidates in front. So, I'm not sure. Um, even with that. In, in mind, I think that most of these policies uh, are working on inertia. These are years-long policies. They take years to sort of put into place. Um, and I think that there are a lot of political mess. There's a lot of political messaging that could change as it relates to, for example, military police in a place like Honduras or a militarized approach towards uh, drug traffickers in a place like Mexico. That sort of messaging could change, but I think in general terms, the policy will stay the same. <laughs> and, and, and Daniel abstains. Uh, okay. Uh, now, uh, questions uh, from the audience. Uh, just some ground rules. Uh, first, I want to get to be able to get to multiple questions. So the three ground rules are, number one, identify yourself. Number two, ask your question in the form of a question. And number three, keep it short. Uh, all right. And, uh, and we'll t t first take some questions from the audience and then f some from Facebook. Uh, here, and then I'll come to you. Uh, just in case people from Facebook didn't hear the question, the uh, question is the extent uh, that uh, drug uh, 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 illegal illicit funds flow from drug economies to local economies. Okay. I guess this was the initial stage of Pablo Escobar legitim le legitimacy. legitimacy building. They, he started by giving money to and giving uh, soccer courts to poor regions in Medellin, and he gained a lot of support, of political support. But I guess drug traffickers after that didn't follow that strategy. Uh, you don't see much of that, at least in Colombia, not anymore. At the beginning, you saw a lot uh, that drug traffickers used to try to get uh, uh, support from local communities by doing this, but not anymore in Colombia. That's not the case anymore in Colombia. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously many a family, whether the United States or Europe, um, has built the foundations of their economic empires on illicit activities. So uh, we should not be surprised if the same process happens in modern-day Latin America, some with more success than others. Um, and we certainly saw, have seen some examples of that. In, in mostly Central America, where I do most of my work, Central America and Mexico. Mexico. But I think the point there is that uh, we, we won't, um, if we don't hear about it and we don't know about it, well, then they have become legitimate or they are well on their way to becoming legitimate. So there's plenty of people who are in that process as we speak and will be considered sort of or already considered legitimate families and many legitimate families that are, as I referred to earlier, the elites, that are making just uh, untold amounts of money and who have based a lot of their own economic activities on these illicit activities. So both things could happen. Yeah, I mean, 
just like a, a city that is a, that's a big uh, steel plant there, people will support the steel uh, industry. And that, that would also happen with illicit markets, because if you're living it depends on that. Sure. Uh, I think it goes back to the question of, uh, uh, because of, of the prohibition paradigm, and I, I agree with Thomas that it's not a panacea to talk about legalization, but one of the problems of the prohibition paradigm is that you create an industry that has rents, and it's illegal, so you cannot do lobbying. When you don't do lobbying, you do corruption. That's the, the legal version of corruption is lobbying. Uh, and of course, they will, they will yes. Uh, that's one of the reasons. If, if you're illegal, you cannot do formal lobbying because you cannot go. Uh, and sure, that, that's one, one of the problems of prohibition. Whether we want to uh, uh, get away with prohibition, that's, an, that's a different issue. But. Thank you. Uh, there was a question back here. Yes, and uh, then we'll come to the front. Uh, Steve, why don't you why don't you take that one? Um, well, I, I I respectfully disagree with you. I think that the, they're they are very similar in the sense that the what what we're seeing is the generators of violence are these second most of the generators of violence are these second and third tier organizations, and uh, certainly their relationship to drugs is is similar in the sense that many of them play facilitating roles and can become wholesalers of the drugs that are passing through their area. So, of, of course, it's related to the larger, the larger question, but their, uh, but their operations are, um, and their, their activities, and the violence that is generated around their activities are, are extremely local in nature. Um, I'm not sure if I missed the question in there, or if that correctly goes after what you were saying. Is that? I, the difference between Argentina and Honduras? Uh, yeah, two, routes, yeah. two, two different routes. Yeah, certainly institutional capacity is, is a question there. Um, in, certain, in certain spaces in, in, uh, in Argentina, you have uh, per capita murders similar to, to amounts that you have in certain pockets of Honduras, although Honduras institutional failures are much more evident. Um, so you have you have much higher rates of, of violence, but the institutional failures failures are very similar, um, and 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 per capita rates of consumption have also increased in Honduras. Um, in the most recent report that I saw from the OAS, they had doubled in certain instances. And in our experience, we have gone to areas like Rio Hernandez and San Pedro Sula, and we see locals consuming powdered cocaine. 
Um, you wouldn't expect to see it in that neighborhood, which one of the poorest neighborhoods, one of the most violent neighborhoods. You wouldn't expect to see that sort of thing, and you did definitely did not see that sort of thing five or ten years ago. So powdered cocaine being consumed and sold in Rivera Hernandez is something that is alarming. Uh, I think one of the things that you're hearing um, again and again uh, is uh, that uh, high rates of uh, transnational crime uh, uh, and violence um, are not inevitable based on structural factors. And in fact, governance is critically important. And the strength of uh, governmental institutions is critically important. And not just law enforcement institutions, although those, although those obviously are on the front line. And so I think that that may be um, uh, a key explainer in the variation uh, uh, between uh, between countries. Uh, we had a question here. Uh, I'm Yeva Yusenite from the Department of Anthropology, assistant professor here. What about guns? Because guns seem to go the opposite direction in terms of vectors from supply and demand, and what would regulating gun markets, what kind of impact would that have on transnational criminal organizations? Uh, Zhao, can you uh, take that? That's a big one, uh, of course, and, and there is some good evidence of, uh, for instance, spillovers from the gun markets in the U.S. to Mexico um, on the border. I think it would take a whole new panel uh, to to answer that one. Uh, I think trivially the, the, the availability of guns, uh, the, I think you can say in general that makes conflict resolution more violent. Of course, there's also always the, the, the Cold War type of theory that says, well, because we have the big guns, people are not going to actually go to, to violence, to conflict resolution. Uh, I think it plays a big role, but it would take a whole new panel, I guess. Uh, Steve, any thoughts? Well, a place like Honduras, going back to Honduras, in Honduras, uh, in, if as an individual you can own as many as five weapons, um, so there is obviously very liberal gun laws. You have to go through the national registry in order to own those weapons, but there is a large and thriving black market there. What we found, we did a study on this last year, and what we found in the case of Honduras was it was more a crime of opportunity. There were, there were like family members and, you know, friends who had relatives in the U.S. and who were buying in bulk in the U.S. and putting them in things like containers putting them in washing machines or cars, like, you know, um, hiding them that way, moving them in, 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 like, groups of, like, 20 to 25 weapons, not, like, an entire container that went down for a large criminal organization, which also happens as well. But mostly it was this sort of crime of opportunity on the local level as well, and especially with something very important with, with the question of guns, which is ammunition. The movement of ammunition, especially the sort of escape valves that they had out of the military and the police, were very alarming. Uh, the sort of you sign out 10,000 rounds for a training session over the weekend, and you use 2,000, and then you sell 8,000 on the black market, which is literally run via WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever. So that's another important aspect of this is ammunition, almost as or more important than the, than the weapons market. Um, I'm going to take a question from Facebook. This is from uh, Tuesday uh, Raitano, um, who notes this was a fantastic pa uh, panel. However, um, it is all male, and she'd like to know uh, what are the gender in implications of an increasingly, increasingly criminalized societies, in particular the role played by and the impact of women in organized crime. Uh, and uh, just before uh, 
before that we answer that, I just want people to know uh, we actually invited not one, not two, but three uh, prominent scholars who were women in this, and unfortunately their schedules uh, wouldn't permit them uh, to be here. But. <laughs> you can have my minute again. <laughs> I guess in drug trafficking there are very few males, in, uh, females involved. I, th I guess what 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 is called in the the drug mules, the women carrying gun, carrying uh, drugs to the U.S. or to North America. Uh, that's the the. I don't know of any big uh, drug de drug uh, trafficking organization that is run by 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 women, but they are exploited by these organizations. Uh, Specifically, as as drug mules, but I don't I don't see many a large involvement of women in these in these organizations. Um, there's the we've seen um, certainly uh, parts of support networks um, or doing tasks uh, such as uh, being messengers. Um, certainly, the infrastructure that includes notaries or lawyers. Um, um, in the question of gangs, um, there are. Um, large support networks uh, often involving women. Uh, what we've seen in terms of um, how this impacts women, much greater numbers of women who have been incarcerated for, for low-level um, drug offenses, uh, for example, or for having, or maybe weapons offenses. And so you've seen a massive increase in, in incarcerated females, which has a huge social impact because what you're talking about is, you know, many times, the female head of the household. Um, so this is this is a sort of ripple effect that is that is coming from this. And in terms of violence against women, we don't see in, in these realms necessarily too many different statistical differences, um, except when it comes to women who are connected or live in gang areas. Um, so and we we haven't really sort of been able to study this more, I think it definitely warrants more study as to in what areas where street gangs are operational, why there does seem to be a slightly higher incidence of homicides, uh, femicides. So I think that this is, a, this is an aspect that, that is worth exploring more. Uh, questions from the audience uh, right there? Yeah. Money laundering. Uh, Steve, you might be a good place to start with this. Um, you, you know, we, we don't, unfortunately, we haven't done a lot of uh, direct work on this. And we did an entire series on elites and organized crime. And we have some, some notion of this from that because what, what you see is, and I think this is the important part um, in all of this, is that we can't necessarily separate the uh, good guys from the bad guys. All of these guys grow up in the same sort of social milieu, the, the, the social networks. Um, and so their interactions with, the, with, um, with other politicians who can provide them access to public works contracts and other ways in which they can launder money, 
or the purchasing of large amounts of, of agro-industrial uh, uh, products, uh, or getting involved in African palm development, for example, or just banks themselves, uh, comes from the fact that they all are in the same, the, the same they, they run in the same circles in many instances. And one of the more interesting aspects that we saw as it related to how they made contact was uh, when we did the network mapping, we had the nodes that would become bigger as you attach more links to it, and we had the soccer team right in the middle, and the soccer team became the biggest node. So the soccer team on a local level became the biggest node in which all of these networks interacted, and then that facilitates these uh, money laundering activities without getting into there are these multiple ways in which money laundering occurs and the need for it. But that just to give you one uh, nugget of information about what we saw as it related to money laundering. Uh, question here. Very short. Okay. Because we only have five more minutes. So what's being done um, in uh, the United States and in, and in Europe uh, in terms of uh, public health given uh, that uh, such a large uh, amount of demand is generated uh, from, uh, from those areas? Uh, I can, you know, uh, take a stab at that. Uh, you know, I served in the Obama administration for the first four years in the Justice Department. Um, supervising uh, a lot of the grant-making and research agencies. Uh, for the very first time last year, uh, the President's uh, overall drug control strategy included more money for demand-side public health uh, efforts than supply-side enforcement-oriented efforts. Uh, you know, that only happened last year. Uh, but uh, there is an increasing recognition uh, in the United States uh, that we have to treat uh, drugs uh, like a public health crisis. I think you can see it in response to the opioid crisis, although I think there's also a very cynical uh, but also perhaps accurate uh, explanation for why uh, when uh, a drug crisis affects um, middle class uh, suburban and rural uh, white people predominantly, we approach it with a public health approach, but when a drug crisis impacts uh, disenfranchised uh, minorities, we approach it with a very different strategy. Uh, that may be uh, overly cynical. We've learned a lot since the 80s and 90s, but it's certainly uh, worth considering. Um, I can't speak to what's happening. Uh, well, actually, I can speak a bit to it. 
I think that uh, in uh, in Europe uh, they're actually ahead of the United States in treating drugs as a uh, public health uh, 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 um, crisis. And so uh, what I would say is is that we're moving in the right direction. Uh, I don't know whether we'll continue to the move in the right direction, and we certainly haven't moved in the right direction quickly enough. Uh, but hopefully uh, we'll get there. Uh, okay, let's see. Um, uh, one final question here, and then a final question from Facebook. I would like to know if you agree with the statement. What's your name? Uh, I'll, I'll follow up. Yes, I, I think there is. Uh, uh, I'm going to talk more on the uh, economics literature. There, there is some evidence that uh, recidivism is higher if you go to prison, and some good causal evidence. Now that, well, of course, recidivism could be higher because you sent more dangerous people to prison as well. Uh, from that to uh, th that suggests that better prison conditions and Alternative uh, punishment, uh, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't say low-hanging fruit, but should be seriously considered for some, some type of, uh, uh, of offenses. Uh, and I think in Latin America, we are, we are, some countries are moving towards that, towards electronic, electronic monitoring that, it, that reduces recidivism. Uh, I, I think we are, especially because of, uh, of the political economy of spending money in uh, in incarceration, I, I'm, I'm optimistic on that. Uh, Steve, any thoughts there? No. Uh, so uh, I have some uh, strong views on this. Uh, it seems remarkable to me that in many Latin American nations where uh, the impunity rates for homicide uh, exceed 90%, that you would uh, have a strategy of mass arrest and mass incarceration for low-level offenses. Whatever your view of incarceration generally, I think we can all agree that let's prioritize the murderers. Uh, and so I think that there's a, sort of a simple uh, priorita prioritization issue and triage issue uh, when you have very limited uh, uh, prison space. And so I think I think it makes uh, sense in the short and medium term to prioritize the more serious violent offenses and deprioritize the less serious nonviolent offenses. The second issue is that, uh, and I think uh, Zhao raised this uh, um, uh, uh, earlier, is uh, prisons when they're not managed in a safe and humane and orderly way. Uh, can become an enormous public safety challenge in that if they become controlled by criminal organizations, they become a huge part of the uh, organized crime story. Because if you're a criminal and you expect throughout your criminal career to be uh, arrested and incarcerated at least once, you need to have an affiliation with uh, organizations that are in, uh, in prison in order to survive. And so this is a very uh, under-recognized issue. Uh, 
in New York State, where I was head of public safety, uh, I had oversight responsibility for the prison system. Uh, about 90,000 people under supervision, 50,000 of them under uh, behind bars, about 36,000 uh, prison guards. Uh, job number one in a prison uh, is uh, keeping people uh, separate, safe, and humane. And you can't do anything else until you have that. You don't have that in many prisons uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Latin America. And when you can't deliver that, um, safety and security doesn't become something that you deliver. It becomes something that you negotiate for. And that's a very dangerous situation when to operate a prison safely, you have to negotiate with the people who are incarcerated. And that happens far too often in Latin America. Uh, we know in the United States that if you invest in evidence-based approaches to rehabilitation, uh, they can work. And they are actually uh, far more cost-effective uh, than incarceration. And so addressing this issue is absolutely critical. Prisons can't get to that second, that very important but second priority of rehabilitation if people aren't safe. And so uh, it's a great question, and we need more uh, attention to it. Uh, now, I'm going to take a, we're almost at our time. I'm going to take a final question from Facebook. Uh, if any of you want to stay afterwards, uh, well, be happy to discuss things uh, offline. But this will be the last question in the formal session. Um, Aaron Rudger asks, uh, what is your opinion of the Northern Triangle countries receiving or not their own version of Plan Columbia? Um, okay, Steve. Um, well, I think it's, I think it's actually um, um, a much different uh, package they're talking about. Um, I, I looked a little bit at least at the, at the package as, as it stands now. Uh, we don't know what what changes are in store as we go forward because uh, it hasn't yet been implemented. But uh, one of the things that was interesting was that the INL, which is the sort of arm of the State Department that would receive most of the sort of law enforcement technical assistance monies, was below the 50 percent uh, mark in terms of the amount of money they would get. Normally, they would get upwards of 60 to 75 percent of the monies. So that was that was a quite uh, interesting aspect. The other interesting aspect is this idea of um, of accountability. You know, creating some sort of uh, mechanism whereby you that you know you they have to uh, go through a certain process of quote unquote certification in order to receive some of the assistance. Having said all that, what we're talking about is uh, not a lot of money um, uh, in 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 the larger scheme of things. Um, politically, it's very important, but it's not necessarily a lot of money in terms of what it can do over the long haul. So these are not Plan Columbia-like levels of money that we're talking about. So this makes it a very different process. And the, the level of commitment and engagement is also very different than what it was uh, with as, as it related to Colombia, there could be some um, aspects um, over time, especially as they might do some sort of focus, uh, at least sort of their equivalent of focus deterrence right now in Honduras, and we'll see how that experiment plays out. Um, but right now, we're talking about two two different things. Um, I think it's a I think it's a good question. Um, you know, uh, hopefully, uh, 
you know, uh, the United States will uh, will stay engaged in the uh, region. Uh, I think that uh, we can play a productive role, uh, and I think we have a responsibility to uh, play a positive role uh, because we haven't always played a positive role um, in the region. Uh, you know, uh, Plan Colombia, uh, you know, is distinctive in its uh, focus on hardcore enforcement and supply side. Um, the new assistance that's being uh, that's being delivered uh, to uh, to the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and just full disclosure, I've served as an advisor to USAID and INL on these things uh, and have written reports of, about it. Um, I think the the challenge there is to uh, really sort of offer. Uh, the best of the U.S. experience in uh, crime and violence reduction and not the worst. So in, I think that our challenge is to avoid pushing out the uh, tough-on-crime, war-on-drugs policies of the 90s and really emphasize the smart-on-crime, balanced enforcement and prevention uh, strategies that are evidence-informed using rigorous impact evaluation that are uh, that have been pushed by this current administration. Uh, that's not uh, it's not easily done, but that's probably the way we can be most constructive. The other thing I would say is that the United States uh, needs to be uh, investing for the long term. Um, uh, while I enjoy uh, uh, um, working in, uh, I, I think that I think it's very important that we be building local capacity. Uh, uh, in the region uh, to do high-quality work, to do high-quality uh, analysis. Uh, there are not enough, in my humble opinion, uh, Daniel Mejias um, in the region, and certainly in the Northern Triangle. Uh, and same, uh, same, there are not enough Zhaos. Uh, uh, we're, we're lucky to have them, uh, but there needs to be a pipeline, uh, a deeper pipeline. Uh, and with that, uh, thank you very much. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.